my name is Maria Paul and I am a senior at Kirkwood High School. This is the second episode of my podcast, The Deeper Meaning of OCD. As someone who suffers from obsessive compulsive disorder and utilizes coping skills throughout my daily life, I feel passionate about creating and sharing a well-rounded compilation of resources from different perspectives for those with similar struggles. Today, I am joined with Dr. Marzell Campbell, who is a licensed clinical psychologist specializing in anxiety disorders and OCD in children and adolescents. She's from Hartford, Connecticut. She's an expert in her field and has a thorough understanding of the disorder. Today, we will be answering the question of what is OCD from a clinical perspective? So hello, Dr. Campbell. Um, I don't know if you want to just kind of tell us a little bit about like your experience and how, how long you've been in the field. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks so much for having me on today. Um, so just a little bit about me. Um, I So I went to graduate school at Southern Illinois University. Um, I kind of had two main um, specialties. So I was in the child and adolescent track, but I also had from the start of grad school, a really strong interest in anxiety disorders and OCD. So I sought out a lot of specialized training for OCD and, and some more kind of specialty training for specific um, anxiety disorders in children, such as like selective mutism. Um, so that was a big part of my training. And I used that kind of moving forward for my internship and fellowship year, sought out um, sites that really specialize in kind of providing treatment um, for this population, especially with kids and teens, um, just because it's something I love doing. I love working with this population. It's something I have a strong kind of interest and passion for. Um, so I'm very excited to be here today to talk a little bit more about OCD and, and um, for, for the kind of talking with other teens um, out there. Yes, I love that. I mean, you know, this whole series um, is really kind of directed towards, you know, that target audience of adolescents specifically, but also, you know, parents of children, um, because being as an adolescent myself diagnosed with OCD, um, you know, I pick up on some, you know, OCD tendencies uh, among my peers. Mm -hmm. um, and I just, I have learned that there is not a whole lot of, you know, widespread education on it mm -hmm. um, and really easily accessible um, resources. Um, so that really is, you know, the sole purpose of this podcast is to give, you know, some really quality resources um, to, you know, teenagers and peers of mine. So I really, really love that that is your, you know, specific focus um, and that you're on this podcast today with me. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So why don't we just jump right into it? Um, what is OCD? What is the clinical definition? Yeah, so when we look at what's OCD from a, a clinical um, perspective, we have these two main parts, the obsessions and the compulsions. Um, I really like to kind of break it down with teens and families. What does that mean? How do they kind of relate? So when we look at that first piece, obsessions, this can be any type of thought, image, feeling in the body that feels intrusive, feels bothersome. Um, the interesting piece, though, about this is everyone out in the world has had intrusive thoughts from time to time. Um, they've done lots of research studies kind of looking at this where they've given 
um, people with a clinical diagnosis of OCD and, and people without the diagnosis, a list of different thoughts, check off the ones that you have. And there's been no differences between um, the two groups. So then it's like, okay, how do we get it into a disorder if everyone out in the world is having these thoughts from time to time? Mm -hmm. And what ends up happening for um, a kind of a subgroup of people is a thought kind of pops in um, and they give this thought meaning. So for example, you know, I'm leaving my home and I have the thought, did I lock my front door? Um, and most people might not even notice the thought, might dismiss it, go about their day. For some people though, they end up attaching meaning. So maybe now I'm, oh, if I'm having this thought, then it must mean it's true. Someone's gonna break into my home. They're gonna take all my stuff. Um, my cat's gonna escape and I'll never see him again. You know, so I'm giving it a lot of meaning, which then ends up to me feeling a lot of distress. A lot of, most cases, anxiety. For kids though, it can be um, an uncomfortable feeling, a frustration. Um, but it's kind of the stress starts to rise. Um, and that's what leads to a compulsive behavior, which is a fancy word for any type of action behavior. It can be mentally, so kind of any type of thoughts or, um, or mental acts um, to reduce the distress. Um, but it can also be an outward behavior. So with kids and teens, we see a lot of reassurance seeking, checking behaviors. Um, it can be, you know, cleaning, excessive cleaning behaviors, redoing behaviors, all types of different things that in the moment temporarily reduces the distress that the person is feeling. But unfortunately, what ends up happening is this kind of pattern and cycle gets reinforced in the brain. And so then the brain, these thoughts, it keeps giving you these thoughts kind of over and over again. And we, they get kind of trapped into this cycle. They're attaching a lot of meaning to it. They feel very anxious. They engage in this compulsive behavior. They feel okay in the moment, but then it kind of just reinforces the fear around these thoughts. Um, so a lot of my work in the beginning is helping to educate people that what you're experiencing, these are just thoughts. Um, mm -hmm. Sometimes you say we have good or bad thoughts. They're just thoughts. Um, and right now what ends up happening for people with OCD is they're attaching meaning and they're responding to the thoughts in a way that's not helpful. And it's actually mm -hmm. kind of maintaining the disorder. So a big part is, you know, focusing on that response piece. Uh, but when we look at, you know, clinically, we want to make sure is someone having these intrusive thoughts or feelings kind of under the obsessions and then are they engaging in a compulsive response? Um, and then is it causing distress for them or impairment in some way in, in their daily life? Okay. Yeah. I, I love, you know, that response because I think like, at least for me, um, I knew that I was suffering with anxiety for a, a large portion of my childhood, but really once I got into high school and more specifically within the last year or so, um, my anxiety was really intense. I was dealing with these intrusive thoughts. Um, but, you know, it never really crossed my mind that like this could be OCD just because of my preconceived, you know, stereotype of, um, you know, like I, I see OCD as being people that are super clean, like everything is spotless or, you know, like totally terrified of germs and sickness and contamination. And although those are very um, common and very big um, and real themes of OCD. That's, that was never me. Like I, you know, I'm a kind of an unorganized person. I kind of have a yeah. messy room sometimes, you know, it's like, I just, it totally went over my head because I was like that. I mean, that's what OCD is. I've always heard my whole life. Like people say I'm so OCD. Um, and so I think that that is really harmful. Um, because like you said, it's really a pretty large umbrella, like, yeah. you know, 
not only does everyone pretty much have intrusive thoughts, but you know, people with OCD, like it can be thoughts about anything under the moon, you yeah. know? Yeah. Um, and so that's what I find really interesting, um, especially when talking about like compulsions and ritualizing, um, from my personal experience, you know, I have a lot of intrusive thoughts about, um, kind of like existential thoughts. I, mm -hmm. you know, I'm, I'm really fearful of death. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, going out in public, like sometimes I do have like those intrusive thoughts, intrusive images of like violence or me, mm -hmm. you know, passing out on the floor. So it really kind of circulates around, um, existential, some illness, anxiety, um, stuff like that. And so for me, um, really my most difficult compulsions to even be aware of are those internal ones, you know, those, those ruminations, um, and, you know, trying to figure it out. Um, those are so hard because, you know, the more obvious, um, compulsions tend to be those external ones, right? Like, you know, checking the door, 10 times every night to make sure it's locked or, or stuff like that. And those are, mm -hmm. you know, very real, very common, but there's also a side of it that I feel like is not talked about nearly as much the, you know, pure O. So I'd love to hear kind of your um, input on like, what is pure O OCD? Yeah. And so when we look at, you know, kind of the, the pure O OCD, um, so it's a lot of times people they're experiencing. So same thing, kind of these intrusive thoughts, these obsessions, and I think what's we're trying, what we're kind of seeing more in the research and over the years is they're still engaging in, in a compulsive behavior. Mm -hmm. It's just like you were saying, it's not maybe an outward behavior that they're doing that people can identify, but there, there are so many mental rituals that people can do that are still maintaining and feeding the OCD cycle. Mm -hmm. um, so it can be anywhere from counting internally, kind of overanalyzing, ruminating kind of on situations, um, it can be trying to replace a thought with another thought, a good thought. Um, I have to think this, if I thought that I have to mm -hmm. say this, if I did this, um, all internal. Um, and mm -hmm. so it may not necessarily be, you know, recognized by, you know, family members. Mm -hmm. Um, the other big piece too, that I think doesn't sometimes gets missed when people look at, at, you know, from a pure O standpoint is avoidance is also a compulsive behavior that I'd like to say is, can be under in the cycle. Mm -hmm. um, so if I'm having intrusive thoughts about harm, you know, now I'm, in, I'm avoiding anything sharp or any, you know, and anything that could lead to harm. And that's also maintaining the disorder. So it's not a, an outright behavior because I'm not necessarily doing something, but I'm avoiding um, the, the distress that comes up with these thoughts and the different things that can trigger it. And that's mm -hmm. also maintaining um, the disorder. So I completely agree with what you were saying too earlier about how OCD, what I love about it is it's such a wide range of things. You know, yes. it's something that I can never get bored. There's always going to be like, I've heard so many different things, um, so many different presentations, but there's, it's always slightly different, you know, even kind of around contamination. I remember my first training case, it was a patient who wasn't so much worried about germs, but was worried about like soap and wanting to get the soap off of their body and hands. So that's why they were washing their hands so much more. They're rinsing it. You know, the thought around, oh, is there still soap on my hands? You know, right. kind of different from someone who's like, oh, I got to keep washing because they're dirty. Um, mm -hmm. So still under that umbrella of contamination, but there's such slight, you know, for each person, there's such slight variations to it that makes yes. it so interesting um, and so worthwhile. And yeah, there's a huge umbrella of things um, that 
come up for teens. And so that's why when I start off with that, what is OCD? What is the cycle? The intrusive thoughts can be anything, any type of thought then can come up um, because our brain just gives us so many thoughts throughout the day. Right. Um, and so it really can be anything. And I hope that helps for some people coming in like, oh, I don't wash my hands or I don't do this. Does that mean you don't have OCD? Like there could definitely be other things going on as well. Um, yeah. In line up under the disorder. Yeah. So really like, you know, the disordered part of it comes in when you're engaging with those intrusive, you know, thoughts, images, sensations, whatever they are, um, in an unhealthy way. Like you're, you're trying to in some way seek certainty, right? I mean, isn't, exactly. isn't that kind of the common thread through all the different intrusive thoughts, all the different themes, um, you know, that intolerance to uncertainty. Exactly. Yeah. So what we kind of see with people is their, it's, so it's a couple of things, but the compulsive behaviors give this temporary sense of certainty. So if I, you know, if we're sticking with the, the hand-washing example, um, you know, I wash my hands and in that moment, they, I feel like they're clean, I'm safe, you know, from danger, mm -hmm. harm. Um, but it's, it's only temporary, um, because it actually, mm -hmm. it maintains the fear around these thoughts and the meaning that we're giving to them. And so we work on, and I know you'll talk about this in a later episode, but a, a big part of the work is learning to tolerate the uncertainty that can mm -hmm. come up around these thoughts. We will never kind of fully know for sure. Um, and, and it's learning to kind of be okay with that, learning to tolerate that through doing the work and through, um, and learning that you don't have to engage in the compulsive behavior to feel safe. Um, to feel, for, to feel the distress go down. Um, that's a big, big part of it too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think we started to talk about this a little bit, but I wanted to kind of touch back on this. Um, so compulsions sometimes aren't, you know, obvious things to, you know, family members, friends, or even yourself. Like they might be normal, you know, behaviors that everyone does, but to you, it is a compulsive behavior. And so I, I wanted to kind of, you know, have you elaborate on that a little bit too, because, you know, even from my, um, my personal experience, like one thing that comes to mind is, you know, going to the doctor, when I have, when I feel like I'm, um, I have some new sensation and it's really bothering me and it feels very urgent that I need to get mm -hmm. it checked out. It's like life or death. Um, and I can tell you every time I go, you know, my doctor's like, <laughs> you're fine. Like you're okay. You know, give me a full rundown. And that reassurance, um, mm -hmm. is really hard for me to take and, not want to go back and like get another, you know, perspective or, uh, or get another opinion or, um, you know, start, I, I'll start to think like, you know, did I describe this sensation the right way? Like, you know, I, I totally, mm -hmm. it's very compulsive for me where I like feel this urge to like, keep going to a doctor, keep getting that reassurance. Um, another thing is Googling. It's like a lot of people will Google like, you know, a symptom or two, but for me, it's like this irresistible urge to, you know, find out exactly what the symptom is and find out all the options so I can like diagnose myself and decide. So that's just one instance in my life where, um, you know, like, I think those things are fairly normal. You know, you go yeah. to the doctor when something's um, something feels abnormal or you, you know, Google something, uh, like a sensation or, or whatnot, but, um, 
the it's hard to make that line I think sometimes mm-hmm. especially talking about like the specific theme I have like that illness um anxiety because you know obviously you should go to the doctor and yeah. you know be checked out but it's where you know you cross over that line of it becomes a compulsive behavior because you're searching for that reassurance. Yep. Um, and like you said, it's very short lasting and short lived yep. yep. and it's <laughs> not like, you know, huh, okay, I'm okay. You know, my doctor said I'm okay. It's, mm-hmm. you know, a week later, there's, there's something else. Um, yeah. yeah, exactly. I think what we really kind of look at too is, is what's driving this behavior. Is this a more kind of anxiety driven um, distressive driven behavior, you know, kind of like, I think you described it really nicely around, you know, in the moment you get that reassurance, maybe, you know, temporary sense of relief, but it also sounds like another one of OCD tricks come in of like, well, can you be sure? Can you be certain? And no, we can't. And the OCD doesn't like that. And it drives up the anxiety where it's like, well, maybe let me get a second opinion, or maybe let me research it this way or describe it this way, or, you know, kind of do it, do it a little bit differently. Um, again, to again, another anxiety driven kind of behavior. And so a lot of times with families, it can be hard to kind of get a sense of, you know, there, a lot of times kids will be doing an everyday, you know, usual behavior that's just kind of taken up to a slightly higher level. Mm-hmm. Um, so I see this a lot with kids and teens of reassurance seeking, you know, they ask their parents a question about something. Oh, I don't feel good. Do you think it's this? Or mm-hmm. you know, do you think I'm getting sick? All kids will do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but now when they're kind of repeatedly asking the question, or if it's just, you know, I bumped my elbow and, you know, kind of a slight, um, a slight kind of trigger for it and you're seeing that kind of same response it's also a really good indicator that this is more of an anxiety driven um, behavior not just so much the information seeking Um, google searching researching meeting with doctors like that's pretty common with that presentation Mm -hmm. and it it starts off kind of you know this innocently enough everyone kind of does it um, but again, it it's, gets reinforced and repeated in the um, in the brain to where these thoughts keep coming up, and then the person feels like they have to keep engaging in those behaviors to feel better, um, to reduce their distress, and then they start to feel trapped. Um, and and so definitely a big part of the work is recognizing what are your specific kind of um, obsessions mm-hmm. and compulsions, and. So a lot of times I work with patients around, okay, let's do kind of some, some treatment around it. And then if after, you know, like say, for example, they were avoiding going to swim club or something, they're like, oh, well, you know, I don't know if it's because I don't like it or because of this obsessive um, thought around it. I'm like, well, let's do some treatment, some work around it. And then after, you know, if you still don't want to go to swim club, okay, that's now more a personal choice versus like an anxiety driven, OCD driven behavior. Um, so a big part of the work initially is also recognizing when are we falling into the cycle? Um, what can we do to stop it? Um, and then kind of moving forward, just always keeping our eyes peered for, for if we're falling back into that cycle with some of our behaviors. Yeah, so it's really, um, you know, from my experience too, just working with a therapist weekly and, and doing exposure and response prevention therapy for about a year now um, consistently, you know, I know firsthand how challenging that is to let go. You know, it's like a tug of war. And and a lot of that is the self-awareness piece, like you were saying, like, you know, knowing like, where is this 
behavior driven from what is the the motive of it mm-hmm. um and so I remember really struggling with that in the beginning of like I don't know what's a ritual I don't know what's not because a couple more examples came to my head of um things you know I I still feel the urges to do so like for example you know I have to say I love you to my parents when I go to sleep or when I leave the house I can't not like I have to, even if they're not in the house, I have to like call them and tell them I love you. Um, and something that's something I've been working on with my therapist, because, you know, of course that's a great thing to say, you know, I love you to your, you know, your parents, your loved ones. Um, but the, the motive or the intention coming from behind it for me was fear. It wasn't like me saying, you know, I just love my parents because I do, but it was this fear thing of like, I have to say it just in case something Mm -hmm. happens. Um, and so, and another thing, like, I don't like going out in public. I don't like driving by myself, something about it. I have to have another person there with me. And, you know, that's a fairly normal thing. Like some people don't like being by themselves, but once again, it's like, even if it's kind of a relatively normal thing that you see a lot of people doing, it's that self-awareness piece and like getting in that mindset of, okay, why am I doing this exact thing? Am I um, doing it to kind of give myself some sort of certainty or relief um, from the uncertainty? Um, And so I think that is a big hurdle for a lot of people going into therapy. And I'm sure you agree because you said, you know, that's kind of the first step is that whole awareness piece, like learning what is OCD? What does it look like specifically to you? Because it's very tailored. Yeah, exactly. It's definitely a it's it's can be very specific to the person. And so a lot of times the work is on getting a sense of, you know, you're having this thought or this experience, what do you feel like what happened if you didn't do it? And that can then really help us kind of see what's driving this behavior. Because exactly like you described, you know, saying I love you, kind of doing these, I see that actually, you know, with different kind of kids and teens, where a lot of what they are saying and doing isn't kind of completely out of the blue, out of the box. Um, And so then it's, um, and that can be harder for the families and, and for people to kind of recognize that this is actually distress driven. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and definitely, you know, it kind of falls back on, okay, if we can recognize what's driving this behavior or even kind of thinking about, if I don't do this, what do I feel like might happen? Is something bad mm-hmm. going to happen? Um, then we, that can help us to kind of, you know, recognize, Hey, this is probably something that's more OCD driven and I need to kind of work on. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it really helps, I think for, it's kind of an ongoing process. A lot of times patients come in through the door, they can identify certain things or they share certain things and we're you're like, okay, that's definitely OCD. But then the more we kind of work together and they start kind of uh, putting in the work themselves, they can start to notice too, like, okay, maybe I don't need to do this behavior or I think mm-hmm. I'm doing this behavior because of this worry, this concern. Um, and they can really start to build up their self-awareness through the treatment, which is really nice to see. Um, a big part is, is helping people learn to, to work more independently on their own um, when these mm-hmm. things kind of come up when they're not in, you know, in my office anymore. Um, so it's always a great thing to see when that awareness starts to build up. Yeah, yeah. Um you know, like I said, there's, there's another episode following this that's really going to dive into treatments, therapies, but specifically ERP, exposure and response prevention therapy. Um, But I did want to touch on it a little bit because we're kind of, you know, dancing around the topic of, you know, like, what is the work that you do to kind of become more desensitized or more accepting of the uncertainty? Um, 
that's I mean that's really your main work right is is ERP therapy okay yeah and so definitely I would say just a, a brief kind of intro into it um, because I know you're kind of saying this is geared towards uh, teens and families mm-hmm. um, definitely what you know has has the most empirical support for OCD is doing exactly exposure and response prevention treatment or ERP mm-hmm. um, sometimes providers will you know throw out different kind of treatment approaches to target OCD, but really what we kind of see is, as the most effective treatment is, is doing the exposure therapy. So it's like, what does that mean? Um, you know, so when we think we break it down, we have the, the exposure to kind of the thoughts, the feelings, the images, the different kind of triggers that can come up um, that um, cause the stress. And then the person engages in a response or ritual prevention. So they're working on reducing and eliminating their usual response, learning that they don't have to engage in this kind of compulsive behavior to feel safe for their anxiety and distress to go down, learning that they can actually handle and tolerate tolerate the uncertainty that can come up with doing it. Um, And we take it step by step. So, you know, sometimes I like to compare it to, it's not like we're throwing you into like a you know your bear cage kind of you know facing your your worst fears at the start it's you know we're gradually kind of taking it step by step helping the person kind of learn and recognize hey i can actually handle this i can reduce um these these behaviors and through doing that it helps kind of take away the meaning that these thoughts have and the person can get to a a place where they notice these thoughts coming up and notice they don't have to respond to them um, in a way like they were before. And that helps them break the cycle and kind of reduce the distress that they're feeling. Yeah. And it's, it's hard work. I mean, you know, (laughs) I know from firsthand, it's like, it's going against, you know, I call it like my intuition or like what feels right is to engage in these compulsions. And, you know, it's hard, hard work, but there's so much research backed up with this therapy. And so, you know, one thing that I really want to emphasize throughout all of my episodes is there is a way to get relief from, you know, from the, um, the struggles and from the, the symptoms you might be experiencing with OCD. Um, and that's an important thing. It's like, there is a way to get relief, um, and it's hard work, but, it just takes repetition. That's really the big thing and, and kind of sticking to it. Um, so I think that's important to really emphasize. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the reasons why I love working with, um, with people who have OCD is through doing the work, they learn, they have this inner strength that they, you know, the OCD says that they didn't have. Um, and, and working with people with OCD, they're, they're one of the strongest kind of people, because like you said, it, it is hard work. We are facing a fear. And I want to really emphasize, like, this is a fear that a person has. It, you know, it may not, you know, on the outside, maybe kind of hard for someone to kind of understand, but this is an anxiety and distress driven kind of behavior and response. Mm-hmm. Um, that we're working on reducing. And, and so the person, you know, they're putting in the hard work and they're using this inner strength um, and it's a highly treatable disorder. Um, so it's highly effective using ERP. So there definitely is hope um, and definitely, I would say um, it, it is hard work, but it, it's doable work. Patients are able to kind of come out on the other, the other end feeling like they have more control of their, their life. Um, not that the OCD isn't driving things anymore. It's now they're, they're driving the bus. They're kind of back in control of their life. So that's why I love working with this population because they're hard workers. Um, they put in the work and they, they get their lives back. Yeah, I, I love that. That's very inspiring. Um, I wanted to backtrack a little bit. Yeah. 
So we're, you know, talking about therapy and how OCD is treated, um, but how much of it is, comes up with like just the basic biology or genetics of, you know, an individual with the disorder, how much of it is environmental factors, and then how, what kind of perspective do you take with treatment in kind of addressing both of those, um, you know, potential factors? Yeah, so definitely what we see with, with most psychological disorders is there is kind of a, a biological kind of component. So we tend to see that um, disorders tend to run in families. So it's definitely the case with OCD, um, where usually, you know, a, a relative, a close relative would have either um, symptoms or, or some uh, traits, um, some flavors of, of the diagnosis. Um, and so definitely there's this biological piece where it runs in families. When we look at it from a, a kind of neurobiological perspective, there's definitely differences um, in just brain, in the brains and brain chemistry of those who have OCD and those who do not have the disorder. And so what we've kind of really seen over the years through um, just medication trials is that targeting the different neurotransmitters in the brain um, through different medications is actually can be really helpful because you're more kind of targeting mm -hmm. those pieces, you know, and kind of, again, how we look at how people get into this cycle there, you know, they do this, they have this thought, they do this behavior, but there's a, a neurobiological piece as to how and why it gets reinforced in the brain. Mm -hmm. um, there's actually some research kind of looking at the neurotransmitters that gets released during, like when someone engages in a compulsive behavior is similar to almost an, an addiction research. Um, and so mm. it, it ends up kind of being in, from a brain perspective, neurobiological perspective, kind of reinforcing. Um, and that's why the person feels, you know, they have to kind of keep doing it over and over again. Um, so there's definitely a biological kind of genetic role with the disorder and also in environmental factors. You know, and if we think about, um, you know, if there's a parent who has the disorder themselves or has, you know, some mild symptoms, um, traits of the disorder, the way they're going to act and respond in, in the environment of the child or teen is going to seem kind of natural and normal um, to the right. teen. That's how they grow up. And but what can end up happening, though, is the teen has this predisposition, something ends up happening, let's say, they seek reassurance from their parent. Um, and it kind of can just set something off where very quickly it can build into a, a disorder. Um, mm -hmm. Or sometimes, you know, well, if your hands feel dirty, go wash them, you know, a simple kind of like, just response. Um, but for where we already have that predisposition, biologically, it can very quickly develop into disorder through the environment. Um, so both play a role, especially with kids and teens. Um, their parents can play a big factor, you know, you described kind of like doctor's appointments, you know, as a teen, those aren't necessarily things that you're kind of going and doing yourselves, like there's a, mm -hmm. a parent component to it. Um, more often with kids, you will see that reassurance seeking parents, they're like, I know you've asked this question three times, but if I don't give you the answer, you get really distressed and I don't know what to do about that. So, you know, that plays a big role too, into how the disorder gets maintained, um, so both of those factors combine together and, and can be targeted through treatment, um, through different kind of treatment options, but something we want to kind of focus on when someone gets started into the beginning of treatment, don't want to kind of ignore either of those pieces. Yeah, I think that is just such a validating thing. You know, when I initially learned that, you know, like with OCD, there is like kind of a, a 
neurobiological explanation for kind mm-hmm. of like what really is happening inside the brain. Um, and I, you know, I just found that so validating because it's like, okay, I'm not crazy. I'm not, you know, making these things up. I'm not being dramatic. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there are scientific explanations. Um, and I think that's a really helpful thing because, you know, for people that are non-sufferers or family members or parents or friends um, or peers that, you know, don't suffer with OCD, um, I think it's hard for them to like really understand what it's like, of course, because, you know, they they don't experience um, the distress. But it's, it's a very real thing and it's, it can be really, really debilitating. Um, and so I, I like to kind of, um, learn about the biological factors of it because it feels more validating, like I said. Um, and then also I loved, you know, I've never thought about that, like specifically with kids and teens, it's like the way they're raised with their parents and, you know, the, the parent, excuse me, the parents not really, you know, knowing that they're contributing to this compulsive behavior, but, you know, they're just trying to be good parents and keep their kids, you know, happy and out of, out of distress. Um, So that's really interesting. It's really like, I'm sure when you're working with teenagers and, and children, it has to be a whole family thing. Like everyone has to be on board and, you know, really watching out for, um, you know, the compulsive behavior. Yeah, definitely. The family work is, is really important as well, especially, um, <clears throat> when it's, when there's certain kind of rituals that are being, um, that are specifically that the parents or kind of other family members are doing definitely a huge part, um, because it, it just goes back to maintaining the, the disorder. Um, so definitely working with families is, is a big part of treatment, help helping everyone to kind of understand, and start recognizing what could be kind of compulsive behaviors mm-hmm. and how um, to kind of just continuously be on guard to make sure it doesn't continue to, to spread and, and kind of take over. It's definitely yeah. very important. Yeah. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, the diagnosing process as well mm-hmm. as you know, how common it is in children and adolescents versus adults, how often is it misdiagnosed, what are kind of the differences when diagnosing OCD in an individual versus, you know, another anxiety disorder or, you know, another mental illness. Um, I wanted to talk about, you know, all of that. So I just gave you a lot, but just, just give me your thoughts. Yeah. So definitely what I'd like to say with, with OCD, um, for both kids and adults, it's, it's a fairly common disorder. Um, definitely, you know, so I think kind of going back again to a point you'd made earlier, like there isn't as much awareness around what mm. is OCD and, and how OCD can present across different um, people. And so there's, I think, a, you know, a lot of people out there who maybe have mild to moderate symptoms that mm. their kind of loved ones are just like, oh, that's a quirk of them, or that's just who they are, and not necessarily recognizing that this is this is OCD. Um, a lot of times in my work, I'll have an older teen kind of come in, and a parent will say, oh, I noticed, you know, when they were younger, they would do this and this, and um, and you know, we thought it was a little bit odd, or we, you know, it seemed bothersome, but it, it kind of went away, or we just kind of like lived with it. And, you know, then through them talking about it, I'm like, nope, that's actually OCD. It seemed like it was driven by, you know, this worry, this concern, um, was engaging this kind of compulsive behavior. So it can often be, I think, kind of missed because there isn't as much awareness around it. Um, And sometimes depending on the severity of symptoms, 
people might not necessarily kind of seek treatment for it or kind of you know, pointed out to other, like if during kind of med medical visits and things like that. But it, it's a fairly common disorder. It does kind of happen, um, you know, so definitely when we look at it with, with kids and teens, there can be a little bit of, of a waxing and waning course um, mm -hmm. for, for younger children where different intrusive thoughts can kind of come up from time to time. But there isn't actually really any difference between the types of thoughts that can come up again, because they're just their thoughts. Um, mm -hmm. And so there's not really a difference there. But um, I can see it quite a bit with kids and teens. Um, and, and um, it can, through the kind of the diagnosis process, what we really kind of look at is, again, what are those, what are the thoughts coming up? What are the kind of responses to those thoughts? Um, how does this maybe fit or doesn't fit in with a, a different presentation? And so often what I can, sometimes, unfortunately, what can happen is if someone doesn't have a a full understanding of OCD and, and how it can present, uh, a patient can kind of get misdiagnosed. Um, unfortunately, what I can see is a teen who's having intrusive thoughts about self-harm, you know, they'll present as like, this isn't something I want to do, but I keep having these thoughts. Mm -hmm. um, someone who maybe doesn't fully recognize it might think, oh, they're depressed or they're suicidal because they're having these thoughts. Um, and not fully recognizing like this is um, an intrusive thought that they're having that's mm -hmm. causing them distress and they have no intent to act on those thoughts. Um, same thing can kind of be the case of a kid who's having a lot of intrusive thoughts about harm related to family members, harm happening to them, might kind of get labeled with like a separation anxiety um, diagnosis where again, it's, it's more they're having these intrusive thoughts about it and so they're engaging in different compulsive responses to it, um, which is different from kind of a separation anxiety presentation where it's more of a fear of separating, a fear of something happening, and not so much those compulsive responses. Mm -hmm. So when we're looking at it from a diagnostic kind of clinical interview perspective, you really want to get a sense of what are the kind of worrying concerns? How are they kind of coming up for the person, the child? And then what is the response to those um, kind of thoughts? Is it more of this kind of compulsive ritualistic behavior? Um, is it kind of more just excessive? You know, we kind of talked about too, it doesn't necessarily have to be a, a behavior that doesn't kind of fit in with, um, you know, not a normal natural behavior. It can be that, but it, is it kind of excessive or to a level that's more than necessary um, for, for in the moment and, and kind of just throughout the day. Um, so we haven't answered any kind of follow-up questions. That was kind of my broad way of, of answering the different questions you had or any kind of more specific um, thoughts around diagnoses or, or kind of things like that. And I'd be happy to kind of answer more. Yeah. Yeah, um, you know, thinking specifically, um, generalized anxiety disorder is a common diagnosis, right? Mm -hmm. For for um, I think specifically adolescents, I can you know I can't even count on on my two hands how many of my peers have you know diagnosed anxiety. Mm -hmm. um, so what's the difference? Like, what is the difference between somebody that's got separation anxiety or generalized anxiety disorder or, you know, any other type of anxiety disorder, but not OCD? Like, what's mm -hmm. the difference there? Yeah. And so it depends a little bit on the disorder, but kind of broadly speaking, when we think about like generalized anxiety or separation or social anxiety, 
those are worries that kind of get defined as average, like things that come up for everyone kind of from time to time. But for those individuals, it's excessive. It's kind of to an ex a level that just feels so intense and kind of bothersome and overwhelming um, mm -hmm. that for them, it's causing them distress, just kind of having the, these kind of more general everyday worries that someone might kind of have from time to time. Mm -hmm. Whereas with OCD, it can be more of these intrusive thoughts that can feel a little bit different. Um, people kind of say, well, they're not kind of happening for most people every single day. Um, although I always like to say, there's more similarities, I think, between the, the two kind of categories and differences. So mm -hmm. there's lots of people out there with intrusive thoughts um, that are, you know, kind of average normal worries, but mm -hmm. their response to it is um, different and kind of more, it's kind of more that compulsive behavior that you wouldn't necessarily see in an anxiety disorder such as GAD or separation or social anxiety. The thing with when we look at GAD specifically, like there can be a little bit of overlap in that those with GAD can kind of seek reassurance um, from like parents or kind of from different um, people mm -hmm. around their worries. They can also engage in more like kind of rumination, really kind of just their worry for them feels like it's serving a purpose. Mm -hmm. Whereas though with OCD, you know, the, the, they can recognize like this is distressing, but I feel like I have to do it. There's kind of this anxiety distress driven kind of response. Like I have to do this behavior to feel better. So it's mm -hmm. not exactly like it, it doesn't have the same kind of positive feeling that, um, the worry. Sometimes people have like positive beliefs about their worries that won't necessarily be the case in an OCD. Mm -hmm. We look at it from a, a treatment perspective though, even though they are separate categories, doing the exposure work can really, across the anxiety disorders, is actually most um, effective. And so I tend to look at it as they have more similarities than differences. It, it's important to kind of get that diagnosis Correct. We don't want to kind of misdiagnose someone. Um, what I kind of more end up happening is when it's a GAD diagnosis versus an OCD diagnosis, there can be more work on doing like cognitive um, work just on, on the thoughts and the worries. And from for OCD, that ends up actually potentially providing reassurance or mm -hmm. just it provides more um, meaning to the thoughts themselves and it can actually maintain the um, the disorder. And so when someone's kind of coming into my office, it, it can be important to kind of really make sure, do we really feel like this is GAD or is it more OCD? Mm -hmm. um, but then kind of from a clinical perspective, because I love doing exposure therapy, my go-to is usually doing exposures across anxiety and OCD disorders. Um, so they do, so I think it's an, it's important to get that kind of good diagnosis, but also working with someone who's had experience in both and they can kind of start to pick up it's sometimes it can be just a subtle, subtle difference um, mm -hmm. between the two that can change your treatment plan. Um, so making sure you're kind of with the provider who has some of that experience can be really helpful and, and ongoing conversations with your provider as well. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, you know, know from my personal experience, um, I was originally diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder. And I actually think that they kind of accompany each other. I think that I've yeah. kind of got both going on. Um, but like, you know, I was seeing like a, a standard kind of talk therapist and it was really harmful for me because I was mm -hmm. getting so much reassurance and mm -hmm. I was like, you know, why am I not feeling better? And so it really took, um, you know, getting in with somebody that was 
specialized in anxiety disorders and OCD and um, utilizes ERP therapy. And that's when I really, you know, it was hard work, but I really started to see, you know, the progress. So I think that's another important thing to touch on. I have, like I said, a lot of peers that have anxiety, like have those intrusive thoughts, see a therapist, a talk therapist, and, you know, it doesn't seem, it seems pretty stagnant, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's something that I think I see a lot among my peers, especially because, you know, parents are usually the ones finding a therapist and they don't really know to, you know, look for ERP specific therapists, but um, that just made worlds of a difference for me, um, switching kind of the work I was doing in therapy. Um, and so I think that's really important. And I, I liked that you said that, you know, it's not, super duper important to like focus on the diagnosis because Mm -hmm. I actually I think that can be a compulsion for me at least in the beginning of like what do I have like trying to find my exact diagnosis and really like ERP and CBT is a big umbrella and it really Mm -hmm. will kind of treat all of these anxiety disorders right yeah yeah so definitely what's the most empirically supported treatment for anxiety um, is also CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, and and a, kind of the difference though, where when we look at it from an anxiety disorder perspective is there can be some of that work around the cognitive pieces of just the thoughts, learning to recognize, evaluate them, reframe them into ways that are more helpful. But it can also be a good kind of treatment marker. If you've been in for treatment, you know, about 10 or 15 sessions and doing that work and haven't really noticed any improvement, any change, it can also be an indicator that, hey, let's do kind of more exposure behavioral based work. Um, I tend to see with with kids and teens doing more of the behavioral side is, especially with kids, because they don't necessarily have as much of that cognitive Mm -hmm. development, that doing the behavioral pieces is more helpful. Um, And we can definitely do like lots of exposures to the worries that can come up with generalized anxiety. Um, And so doing that kind of piece is is very helpful. And and then, you know, but also, um, yeah, it just, if if it's more of like, you're unsure, I think it's an ongoing conversation to have. If you're kind of noticing like, hey, these things are kind of coming up, but we're not really making progress. can we do it more from a behavioral approach, which is the big part of ERP exposure and response mm-hmm. prevention is pretty much all behavioral. There's some yeah. kind of cognitive components, but it's not the same as like, let's try to uh, understand and reframe our thoughts. Cause you're just going to get trapped that way. you just, it's OCD just loves that. <laughs> so right. we don't want to do that. Right. Um, Adding fuel to the fire, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And that's why when we look at from a, a treatment perspective, for OCD, it's really just on that behavioral piece, but sometimes you can get some, you know, traction doing the CBT approach with the anxiety disorders. And that's kind of another distinction between the two. Um, but from a clinical personal standpoint, I love doing exposure. So I'm like, let's do exposures for everything. <laughs> yes. Yes. And, you know, from my experience, I, I second that, that has been really, really <laughs> helpful for me. So, um, you know, it definitely is worth a try, right? I mean, you kind of have to see Mm -hmm. like what works for you to a certain, you know, extent. And I, I I wish that there was more, um, 
there were more therapists that were trained in this field and, and specifically ERP therapy, because what it seems is like, at least in my area, it's pretty sparse. Um, and that's, you know, I think part of the problem is, you know, that lack of widespread education about it and that lack of just resources of, you know, being therapists that can actually utilize this type of therapy. Um, it's that, I think that's a big challenge too. Yes. So unfortunately that is the case where there are a lot of therapists out there who are, um, have some CBT training, say that they're a CBT therapist, but not necessarily, um, trained or feel comfortable with doing kind of the exposure based work. And so I think, unfortunately, what I end up seeing with families will say like, Oh, I was working with so-and-so and, um, you know, they said they were CBT, but we didn't really end up kind of, and I'd say like, Oh, did you, what exposures did you do? Mm-hmm. We didn't really do that. Or I don't know. I don't really know what you're talking about. Yeah. So, so that, I think that's unfortunate because they weren't doing kind of the work that needed to be done for right. that disorder. Um, so it's, it's unfortunately kind of this, um, I think a problem and concern out there for a lot of, uh, parents and, and just families kind of seeking treatment on, on trying to find a therapist and, and what to kind of look for. Um, mm-hmm. and, and hopefully is, you know, I mean, there's been decades of research looking on exposure-based work, but it's, I think been more getting integrated into like training programs Mm -hmm. and things like that, that we can kind of see more of a a growth in in these treatments for people with with anxiety and OCD, um, that they don't have to travel so far or things like that to get um, appropriate treatment. Right. Um, So I have another question. So specifically, you know, working with your population of children and adolescents, you know, how, how chronic is OCD, um, especially in, you know, children and adolescents? Is it something that some people will grow out of? Um, I know you kind of touched on this, like, you know, intrusive thoughts are a normal thing, but kind of that, that natural, like intolerance to uncertainty that children Mm -hmm. and teenagers with OCD have, is that something that, they can sometimes grow out of? Is it a chronic thing? Um, You know, I know that the treatment can really, really lessen the severity of Mm -hmm. distress. Um, But is it something that kind of usually needs to be worked on throughout, you know, an entire lifespan of an individual? Or what's kind of your take on that? Yeah, so I, I think so a couple of points. One, I would say, you know, so when someone's kind of developed OCD, it, it becomes like a lifelong, you know, something that that's always necessarily going to be there. So I like to tell people, we're not going to like cure you. Um, and because there's a lot of, you know, people saying like, it's not something I need to be cured from, but, mm-hmm. but just in general, we're not going to, we're not going to be able to make the thoughts go away because mm-hmm. they're thoughts, they're thoughts that people just can have from time to time. Right. What more of the work and treatment ends up becoming, especially kind of towards the end of it, is recognizing when are you falling into that cycle? How are you, and how can you respond um, in a way that's more helpful? Do you need to do an exposure in that moment? Have you caught that? Oh, that was just a ritual. Can I undo it in a way? Mm-hmm. So it becomes more training the person to kind of recognize 
are they potentially kind of falling back into this and, and almost kind of pulling that weed out before it starts to grow and really spread and become a problem again. So it's something they always have to kind of keep their eyes out for. But treatment, the treatment approach tends to be more kind of short term. We don't want people in treatment for, you know, years and years and years and kind mm -hmm. of like, this is your life now. No, that's not the case. You come in and you do the work, do the exposure treatment. Um, it's, it's very effective. And so then people maybe from time to time need to do a little, a booster refresher mm -hmm. with kids and teens, more so with kids, but sometimes with teens, you can see where a new intrusive kind of thought might come up, you know, and, and as they kind of go throughout their life, um, especially kind of transition. So like middle, middle school, high school, some of those kind of stressor periods, you might see a, a kind of almost like a flare up potentially, but doesn't mean that, you know, that they go through a full kind of course of treatment again, maybe it just needs a refresher, or maybe they just kind of go back through their treatment materials. Oh, this could be a good exposure to kind of target that catching it kind of early um, before, before it spreads. So I guess to kind of answer your question is, it isn't some, you know, I think for some kids it can kind of wax and wane, but not necessarily something that they would like fully grow out of. And definitely not something where I'd say, let's wait and see, um, mm -hmm. because we know how quickly it, it can really grow and spread. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but not to kind of say that, oh, if you have OCD, you know, this is kind of your, your life and like, you can't um, do all the kind of goals and things that you would like. It's just something more that you have to learn to keep kind of monitor of and, and kind of be aware of um, almost in the case, like a, a kind of a chronic illness, but not kind of fully to that level. Like it's something that will, will be there, but you can definitely through doing the exposure therapy, you'll have the tools to kind of manage it throughout your life. It's not like the treatment would change just because the thoughts change or the behaviors change. Treatment's always going to be the same. Um, and so equipping my a big part of my work is kind of helping empower families and and the, the child the teen to kind of feel like they can be their own therapist at the mm -hmm. end of treatment and like and then be able to apply the skills as they go throughout life yeah I love that because it's I think a lot of the skills you know I've learned in therapy to specifically target and treat um, my OCD they're all pretty applicable to just life in general, you know, people that, um, you know, don't even experience OCD, like life is uncertain, life can be mm -hmm. scary. Um, and I think there's just some really, really powerful and effective life skills that you learn throughout um, learning to deal and tolerate uncertainty. Um, and I just, I think that that's such an empowering thing in it of itself as, you know, these like valuable, like life, I call it like tokens that you, you know, get from therapy. And it's like, you can keep those in your back pocket. And even if you're, you know, not in therapy anymore, you've kind of got a pretty good grip on, you know, not letting yourself fall back into those, those compulsions and, and dealing with, um, your obsessions in a, in a more healthy way. I think there you've got those like little tools in your toolkit that you can pull out, um, and that's just, I mean, just such a valuable thing for anyone. Yeah, definitely. I think a lot of people end up feeling, you know, at the end of treatment, they've, they've learned all the things that they can apply to other areas in their life. Mm -hmm. Um, and just feel like, you know, they have more control and, um, and just more, more kind of empowered in, in their life and in the choices that they make. Yeah. Um, so to kind of conclude, um, today's episode, I just wanted to, I, I 
it might be kind of putting you on the spot, but do you have, you know, any advice, any resources that you would direct someone towards, especially, um, you know, if they're a teenager or um, for whatever reason, it's maybe not feasible to see a therapist or, you know, they don't even know where to look, how to start, you know, obviously seeing a clinician um, is probably going to be the most ideal. Um, but, you know, where can people look to find really, really, you know, well-trained, knowledgeable therapists that are going to really be able to utilize ERP? And if not, what are the backup? Like, are there other um, options if therapy isn't feasible? Yeah, so I think some great resources for kids, um, teens, families, um, so the International OCD Foundation um, website, so iocdf.org, they have a lot of great resources. Um, but what's also nice is if you're looking for a provider, they have kind of a list of, of providers that are, you know, trained and, and are part of the group that provide exposure therapy. But typically on their website, too, they'll have um, different um, kind of books and programs that can kind of walk people through how to maybe try to do things, you know, on their own, um, how to maybe set up doing some exposures on their own, and that can really help them if they don't have access to, to a provider. Um, another really great resource is the, um, so ABCT, Association for Behavioral and Cognitive Therapies. Um, they also have some resources and a lot of a list of kind of different providers across the country that can provide, um, you know, appropriate treatment for people with anxiety and disorders. So that's really where I try to direct families to to kind of look at and uh, just get more information. Um, they have like videos and just different things if, if you're kind of unsure. Um, also talking with, you know, potentially a pediatrician about um, even if we just so sometimes kind of coming in we like ideally to do the combined approach of medication and treatment. Um, if that's not necessarily an option, sometimes it can be just getting that relief on the medication side. So talking with a pediatrician, um, if they're feeling, you know, comfortable and, and kind of um, competent to potentially assess and kind of um, prescribe medication to help give some relief um, can also be a good avenue and also potentially provide recommendations for, for therapists um, mm -hmm. in the, potential local community um but there are so there are a lot of kind of books and programs out there my um I guess kind of caveat with it though is is really trying to get a sense of you know does this person in their description say that they are providing this from a, an ERP exposure mm -hmm. therapy kind of standpoint um like we touched on earlier a lot of people will say they have you know, they're CBT based or they have this experience, but you really want to kind of get a sense of like, do, are they um, going to provide that exposure therapy? Are they going to incorporate exposures into their work? Um, are good questions to kind of ask to, or kind of if you're looking through like a potential book, um, kind of a, a self-guided book to kind of see, is that a part of their materials? Because um, that's, that's what we find is the most effective form of treatment is doing the exposure based work. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, w with in the beginning, um, when I was seeing my therapist, 
we kind of worked through the book Freedom from Obsessive Compulsive Disorder by Dr. Jonathan Grayson. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with that yeah. book. Um, it was so helpful because it was, it complemented my therapy really well. Like I would read a chapter mm-hmm. while I was kind of each week, you know, digging more into the exposures. Um, and so that is definitely a book that, um, I would recommend because that was very helpful with me and really aligned well with my personal um, therapist's approach. Um, so I don't, I don't know if you ever referenced that book, but I know it is a big, you know, recognized book in the yeah. OCD world. So yeah, definitely. I think that's a good one. That one focuses on like uh, embracing the uncertainty. Mm-hmm. Um, there's lots of other books too by like uh, just, I think different providers looking at it from kind of a, a kid perspective, mm-hmm. um, like Dr. Marsh has a kind of a couple books, um, talking back to OCD, um, can be one that towards the second half of the approach is more kind of exposure based. Um, but what's nice is kind of on the different websites, they have all, I think kind of books catered to different age groups because mm-hmm. sometimes it can be and catered towards like kids versus like the parents versus mm-hmm. like how, you know, cause sometimes it's really having the parent pull off their accommodating behaviors mm-hmm. um, and that can be just the world of difference for the, that child's presentation. Yeah. Um, so, so lots of different resources. Um, but I also say like kind of when in doubt trying, what's nice too is a lot more expansion around telehealth. So, you know, mm-hmm. I'm seeing people from pretty far away now at this point um, yeah. that wouldn't have been able to meet weekly with me, um, but that's kind of changed because of telehealth. So, um, so definitely, I think if able to um, try to find a therapist who's fully trained to kind of just help further guide uh, the treatment is Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for um, joining me on this episode today. I think this was really informative. And I just, you know, like I've said before, I really, really hope that this is going to be helpful to, you know, any listeners that are kind of like, you know, wanting to know more about the disorder itself. What are the first steps? Like, am I, I, you know, there's a lot of um, information that I really want to get out there and push out to people because I personally found it really hard to, you know, find out about ERP therapy and really um, get the help, the right help that I needed. Um, So I really appreciate all of your work and I appreciate you coming on here today. Um, is there anything else you wanted to add? No, I think just, yeah, thanks so much for having me on here. I think this is great that you're doing to help, you know, I think kind of spread more awareness around this disorder that does affect so many. And, and hopefully you can get more people just connected with the resources and helpful information. But yeah, thanks so much for having me on here. Um, this has been, you know, this has been a lot of fun. This has been great. So thank you so much. Thank you.